0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. How Denver treats its homeless population is at issue in the May election. But not even groups that fight homelessness agree a proposed ordinance is the right approach. To help us understand what this would do, Denverite's Donna Bryson is here. She's housing and hunger reporter. We're also going to talk about the deeper trends around homelessness that have led to this moment. And hi, Donna. Good morning. If voters approve Ordinance 300 it would overturn the city of Denver's so-called urban camping ban, prohibiting people from sleeping in public places. But it's more than that. What else does it do?
1: The ordinance was brought by Denver Homeless Out Loud, and they see it as a human rights issue, that the camping ban infringes on people's rights to survive, and they call Ordinance 300 Right to Survive. In addition to overturning the camping ban, it would overturn some of the city's laws on resting in public. It would also enshrine that it's legal to to feed people, you know, to donate food to people in, in the parks. I and mean, we've seen a lot of that going on. That's not illegal.
0: I was going to say that happens now. Yes. Okay. And
1: it's not illegal. But their sense is that it could become illegal. If the camping ban was passed, other things could be passed that could make it difficult to live when you're homeless. They also would enshrine that it's legal to sleep in your car. Again, that's not illegal in Denver at the moment, but they want to make the statement that they don't want that to change. Mm. The camping
0: ban, just to be really clear, it just says you cannot sleep anywhere in public and cover yourself.
1: The camping ban, which city council adopted in 2012, establishes that you can't shelter in public, you know, eat in public uh, Sleep in public while taking shelter. And it does specify what sheltering means, which includes sheltering under a blanket.
0: Opponents, which include a group called Together Denver, say they're fighting the right to survive ordinance uh, as a matter of public health and safety. What are they telling you? Give us a, a sense of their argument.
1: There's kind of two streams to the argument. There is, as you pointed out, this idea that it might undermine the city's ability to protect public health and safety, to ensure that the streets are clean and that say, people with disabilities can move around on the sidewalks to ensure that when food is handed out, that it's safe, safe to eat. They also argue that the proposal goes too far, but they also argue that it doesn't go far enough. The tagline has kind of become that this doesn't do anything to help people who are living in homelessness.
0: That it doesn't address the root of the problem. Exactly. I wonder how the supporters respond. In other words, the supporters are people who presumably have the best interests of those who are homeless in mind.
1: I'll uh, we'll go back to the original point, and I guess the original impetus of this, that it's a matter of human rights in the view of the people who support this. And Denver Homeless Law does do other work on housing, which is the root issue, of course, of homelessness. They're backers of tiny homes. They've helped create that whole movement. Um, but so they, they are...
0: would say that right to survive is not in a vacuum. Yes. Okay. And,
1: and they would say that the issue is that's going to take a while to create the housing that we need. There's going to be people who don't have housing for many years to come, most likely, and that their rights should be protected.
0: Let's follow the money a little bit, Donna Bryson. Opponents of the Right to Survive ordinance have raised nearly 10 times what supporters have. Talk about that disparity, why it's so uneven.
1: Well, the opponents are politically well-connected. One of the chief spokespersons for the No on 300, uh, they call themselves Together Denver, uh, works for CRL Associates, which is a pretty well-known lobby group here in Denver. And they also have the support of, say, the Apartment Association of Metro Denver, the the support of people with money. (laughs) And on the other hand, Denver Homeless Out Loud is a bit more of a, a grassroots, scrappier group. When I look at their campaign finance reports, it's a lot of... Five and ten dollar donations that have piled up, but not piled up in the way one big donation from, say, the downtown Denver Partnership has done for no one three hundred.
0: It sounds to me like the opponents of the right to survive measure have some business interests perhaps in this. Do you think that's fair to say?
1: I think what they would say, they have an interest in the city being well-run so that business people can run their businesses and Uh big businesses, you know, but I've spoken to small business people too in in places like the Cole neighborhood and Five Points concerned about the impact on their business of people camping on the streets outside.
0: I want to get back to the original camping ban, again, as you said, first passed by the Denver City Council. At the time, it was positioned as a solution because it was supposed to come with services, That is, you know, when someone who is on the streets is approached to relocate, you'd say, you know, what do you need? Can I connect you with a shelter or housing or food? You've found that that's not necessarily happening, though.
1: The camping ban, as it stipulates in the law, police officers, are their first reaction is not to arrest or to cite or issue a warning. It's to determine whether the person they're encountering needs help. And the police have statistics showing that since mid 2012, when the law became law, there have been 12,000 encounters between a police officer and either an individual or a group of people living in homelessness. And very few, very few arrests. <laughs> and very few even written warnings. Police say that that shows that they are.
0: Not taking the law enforcement the, 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 approach. that the, the the, sort of the, Their management. first
1: reaction is to try to help. But when you talk to Denver Homeless Out Loud that's done bigger surveys of people living on the streets, they say that only you know, a small percentage ever offered any kind of help. Offered a ride to a shelter, offered information about where they can go for help. And I spend a little bit of time just talking to people on the streets and they'll say the same thing. Their sense is that they're just being moved along. And part of that might be that we don't have enough services for people living on the streets. And that's one argument that service providers have made, that this whole debate, this whole political debate about right to survive is spending lots of money, as you mentioned, that could be spent on services. And the uh, Colorado Coalition for the Homeless actually put out a statement detailing things that they think we could do to improve services for people living in homelessness. So trying to make that part of the conversation, too.
0: Yeah, the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless is essentially remaining neutral on the question of right to survive.
1: But not neutral on the question of the camping ban. They would like to see the camping ban toppled as well. They Mm. just would like to see it done perhaps by city council. It might be a smoother, less contentious process, but i do think we have to look back. It was pretty contentious to have the camping ban (laughs) become part of our law.
0: Yeah, Donna Bryson of Denverite, I I recall that the camping ban also came around the time of the Occupy movements when protesters were setting up camps in places like Denver Civic Center. Is there some conflation here of like that and the homeless issue?
1: It's interesting because there are people at Denver Homeless Out Loud who will say just that, that the situation, the environment at the time the camping ban was adopted is not a normal situation, not something that's going to happen again, Mm. and that perhaps camping ban was an overreaction.
0: Okay. You've reported that on any given night, some 5,000 men, women, and children live on the streets or are in emergency shelters or transitional housing across the seven counties that make up the Denver area. I'm interested in knowing if that's been consistent; those numbers, or we're seeing more or less homelessness overall.
1: That has been consistent over the last five, six years, around five thousand, around six thousand. Those figures come from the point in time, which is a huge effort every year to get a count, to get a grasp of how many people are living in homelessness. And an overnight survey, an overnight, and it's one day, one twenty-four hour period, so it really is just a snapshot. It probably is an undercount of people actually living in homelessness, but it allows us to kind of see what the trends are.
0: I bet you're asked this all the time as a housing and hunger reporter. Has marijuana, legalized recreational marijuana, increased the homeless population? It sounds like n- not.
1: It's interesting. As I mentioned, I talked to people living in homelessness and their take on marijuana. A couple of times people have told me this, that. They lost their housing because of marijuana, and that marijuana came in. It's part of the reason that our economy has been booming, and that's why rents went up. So it's an interesting way to look at it, <laughs> the opposite way. Oh, I way. see. And it's, these not are often it's been
0: a magnet for people to come here who are homeless, but it is resulting in homelessness. Yes,
1: and you hear that from people living in homelessness, people who've, who've lived in Denver all their lives. It's not as if they've come here, but who feel that they're homeless because the economy has boomed and their job, their wages have not kept up with it, and they blame marijuana for the boom. So it's That's an interesting, interesting flip side of that argument we often hear about marijuana.
0: Last month, there was a settlement in a federal lawsuit over how Denver treats people living on the streets. And this suit was based on how city employees had handled people's belongings during street cleanups back in 2016. How do you think that speaks to the larger tension?
1: Oh, interesting. That lawsuit was organized in part by Denver Homeless Out Loud, the same group that proposed the toppling of the camping ban. And again, it's their belief there and that they act on that the way people are treated on the streets should be constitutional, should be legal. People were being stripped of their belongings, finding it difficult to get them back. (laughs) And the lawsuit was a class-action lawsuit with five named litigants who received $5,000 each or under the settlement. The settlement hasn't been... uh, okayed by the court yet, but it seems to be moving in that direction. Mm. But I think more importantly, it was an opportunity for the city to sit down with people living in homelessness and talk about better practices. And the city has acknowledged that they can do better. The city tries to present the settlement as a win-win, uh, not a loss on either side, but the city did agree to pay the legal fees of the litigants, which is an interesting point. You know, it's the kind of thing you do when you admit defeat, in a way. Mm.
0: Of course, this is not the only thing. On the ballot in Denver, uh, you've got city council races and a mayor's race. To what extent is this influencing the conversation among candidates about the issue of homelessness?
1: Well, the issue of housing and homelessness was part of the conversation among candidates. Every city council district, the mayor's district, housing is and affordable housing is first and foremost, I think, on the minds of people in Denver having right to survive on the ballot Kind of helps us focus also on the people at the very low end, the people who are most desperate. And that's been useful, I think. Thanks for being with us. Thank you.
0: Donna Bryson is housing and hunger reporter for Denverite. We've been talking about Ordinance 300, the right to survive measure on the May ballot. OK, an update now on mentally ill people stuck in Colorado's jails awaiting treatment before their cases can move forward. The state has agreed to address this, says CPR Justice reporter Allison Sherry.
2: Thousands of people have sat in jail for months on small-level charges.
1: It's been far too long.
2: Attorney Iris Etan has worked on this issue on behalf of disability advocates for 10 years.
1: All the sad stories from the families all over the state of Colorado, stuck in limbo without mental health treatment, waiting for that treatment before they can even pursue challenging their criminal case.
2: All of those stories led to a federal lawsuit, and an agreement means state officials have pledged to change the entire way they treat mentally ill people in jail. These are people who've been found incompetent to stand trial. They are largely shifting people from waiting for hospital beds to getting them help in outpatient community settings, which means they'll get out of jail sooner. Robert Worthwine heads the Office of Behavioral Health.
0: The goal is to build a community system, and we meet the needs of these individuals so that they can be bonded out and go home and get the services they need in their homes.
2: As part of the agreement, Human Services is expected to have to pay $10 million next year in fines. The money will fund more services for mentally ill people in the criminal justice system. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News.
0: The glitz and glam of Aspen are the focus of Colorado Wonders today, our project to answer your questions about the state. CPR's Western Slope reporter, Stina Sieg, takes us to downtown Aspen on a typical Saturday night.
3: It's 10 degrees out, but the town's not going to bed anytime soon. Crowds in designer jackets and a few cowboy hats tiptoe over icy sidewalks, past chic bars pumping out music and mannequins peering from the glowing windows of Gucci and Ralph Lauren.
0: So we actually have a full Russian sable coat with a large hood, and it uh, retails for $60,000
3: Ryan O'Leary co-owns Real Aspen, a shop selling furs and exotic animal skins across the street from Prada, which he says locked its doors one time so Kim Kardashian and Kanye West could browse in private. This in a town where the average single-family home is around $7 million. O'Leary says there's so much wealth here, it becomes commonplace.
4: In
0: Aspen, there's always an opportunity that you could be talking with a billionaire and you would never know it.
3: And that's the kind of thing that Steve Fling of Castle Rock asked Colorado Wonders about.
4: And specifically when Aspen started becoming a a mecca or or a destination for the, the rich and famous.
3: For the answer, you have to go back, way back, to those decades when Aspen was lying fallow. A remote outpost where a few hardy souls were somehow scraping by at nearly 8,000 feet.
5: People grew their own food. Sometimes you moved into the Hotel Jerome during the winter because you couldn't afford to heat your house.
3: The fanciest rooms there now can go for thousands of dollars a night. Mike Monroney with the Aspen Historical Society says Aspen boomed in the late 1800s as a silver mining hub. Then it busted hard when the mining economy
5: collapsed. The population dwindled to 700 people by 1930. We call those years the quiet years.
3: And into the silence walked a man with a vision.
5: What we now call the Aspen idea, mind, body, spirit.
3: That idea was pushed by Walter Pepka, a businessman from the East, whom most tongues call Pepki. Monroni says when Pepka came to Aspen in the 1940s, it was still bottomed out, full of decaying Victorians and empty streets. Skiing had arrived a few years before, but World War II had stalled any big development. Pepka didn't ski, but Monroni says when he looked out on those steep, snowy slopes cradling this ghost of a town, he saw a business opportunity, a way to fund the lofty venture he really cared about, creating a magnet for
5: great minds. Whether they be artists or musicians or economists or scientists, could all come together and share ideas and each with their own unique perspective help come up with solutions to the great issues of humanity.
3: As we call it now, the Aspen Institute, the think tank Pepka helped start in 1949. He also founded the Aspen Music Festival, and to support all this, the Aspen Skiing Company. All three grew together, giving Aspen a foundation that Monroney says still fuels it mind, body, spirit. In a place that had been so isolated for so long that Monroney says the locals didn't care who you were, even if you were Gary Cooper, one of the town's first Hollywood visitors.
5: So celebrities could come here and rub shoulders and be almost anonymous. And I think enjoyed that and have over the years. It's, it's different now.
3: Yeah. Especially if you're someone like Mariah Carey. Still
4: here. Mariah! Please!
3: Please! <laughs> A video from a few months ago shows paparazzi hounding her as she walks into a fancy Aspen store with her bodyguard. An older woman in a plain puffy jacket hustles past like she wants no part of the scene. Which brings us to one more aspect of this Colorado Wonders question. How have Aspen's changes affected the everyday people who live here? Pitkin County Sheriff Joe DeSalvo has a joke about it.
4: You know, how many aspenites does it take to change a light bulb? Uh, And the answer is usually 100. It's uh, one to actually change the light bulb and 99 to remember how great the old light bulb was.
3: DeSalvo admits he's one of the nostalgic ones, though he still loves this place. He misses the low-key vibe he felt when he first rolled into town in 1980, back before Aspen became shorthand for extreme wealth. Sure, he'd see some famous people time and again.
4: But then the celebrities were more interested in being locals than it was us being attracted to their celebrity.
3: A transition seems to have taken place sometime between the mid-80s and the early 90s, maybe hastened by the opening of the Silver Queen Gondola downtown and the swanky St. Regis Hotel. There's a big downside to this change. Bob Broaddus, DeSalvo's predecessor, watched the shift during the 24 years he spent as an iconic counterculture sheriff, trying to balance the needs of everyday people and famous folks, and of course, also the super rich.
4: As
5: more and more of them bought homes here, more and more of them joined. And
3: pushed more and more people out.
5: The cost of housing here went from Fairly expensive to unreachable for the working person.
3: The only reason Broadus can be here now is because he snagged one of Aspen's coveted affordable housing units, a small studio apartment in a former motel down by the airport. His cardiologist doesn't even think he should live at this elevation, so he is tethered to an oxygen tank to stay here. He does it.
5: Because of my homies.
3: His homies. Friends Broadus affectionately calls freaks, like his late buddy Hunter S. Thompson, rabble-rousers and visionaries who fought to preserve the old houses and the surrounding wilderness, and who believe the town is worth all the financial sacrifices it takes to be here.
5: I realized I came here for the skiing, but I stayed here because of the magic of the people.
3: So what about the Aspen of Walter Pepka and that mind-body-spirit idea he envisioned all those years ago? Many Aspenites say it lives on, in the art and music festivals, in the dignitaries who meet here, in the killer skiing. But then there's also all those fur coats and Prada bags, and giant mansions snaking up the mountainside. All of it is Aspen today. I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News.
0: What in Colorado makes you wonder? Tell us through Colorado Wonders at CPR.org. What if you could conquer a fear, say the fear of heights, without ever leaving the ground? Virtual reality is usually thought of as entertainment, but it's increasingly being used in therapy. The University of Colorado Boulder recently started using VR in its counseling services. Monica Ng is the program's director.
5: So we put the students in the environment they are most afraid of, and then we walk them through with some breathing and relaxation, coaching, so that we pair that um, with the anxiety response.
0: We got to see this VR in action. CU student Hannah Sohn puts the goggles on and chooses the cockroach simulation that helps people fight what's called catceridophobia. She turns her head left and right to take in the virtual environment.
6: We've got, like, pictures on the wall and a bookshelf with books on it and then a big flat-screen TV, which is what I'm kind of facing. And then in front of me, there's a desk with two books on it to the right. And now he's telling me some statistics that more than 25% of people are afraid of cockroaches. He said there's 4,600 species of cockroaches. And the American cockroach is one of the fastest-running insects in the world. So he's just doing a little bit of education right now. Sometimes understanding more about the thing you fear can actually help you overcome that fear.
0: Somehow hearing about their speed from the system's narrator doesn't seem like it would help much. In any case, the program director says there's lots of potential here.
5: There's a lot of applications we we could use that for, especially uh, with social anxiety and even uh, substance abuse. There's so many things that virtual reality can do, and some of them even involve the senses, uh, olfactory senses, so that they could smell alcohol, smoke, you know, so that we can then talk about the
6: triggers. And now he asked if I could sit and watch the cockroach for the next 10 seconds or so. So now if I look down, I can see it running on the table. Now he's just kind of validating that I'm hanging in here. I'm still watching the cockroach and that facing my fears is a good thing. Yeah, it was way more realistic than I expected because I've read about virtual reality and I've seen like little demos through videos uh, specifically for PTSD patients. So I was expecting it to look more like a video game environment, but it felt way more real than I was anticipating.
0: All right, still to come, we're going to meet a pioneer of therapeutic virtual reality. That's in the next half hour. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.
6: I'm Sam Brash, host of Purplish. It's a show about Colorado's democracy from member-supported CPR news. Big questions about state government, answers from CPR reporters, experts, and voters. I want to know what my fellow Coloradans think about things. I was
1: a little surprised to hear him say he doesn't want to use Kill committees.
5: It's just a unanimous feeling around the table. Why can't this get fixed?
6: Subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Let's get back to our story now about virtual reality and how it can be used to treat anxiety, from a fear of bugs to even PTSD. We're joined now by a pioneer of therapeutic VR, Dr. Barbara Rothbaum, started working on this in the mid-90s. I asked her if her colleagues thought she was a heretic back then.
7: Our line, and people hate it when I say this now, is where we're on the cutting edge of the lunatic fringe. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, now, now we can say, you know, I do virtual reality exposure therapy and everybody nods and, you know, seems to know what I'm talking about. Before, they just tilted their head and looked at me like, uh, okay.
0: Your team published the first study on VR in therapy back in 95. I wonder how you were using it back then.
7: We did. We published the very first study using virtual reality to treat a psychiatric or psychological disorder, and we used it for the fear of heights. And it wasn't really that we thought we needed a new treatment for the fear of heights, but it was more of a a test balloon for using virtual reality as exposure therapy.
0: That is to say the sort of traditional ways of treating a fear of heights were were just fine? You wanted to... Merely see if you could add another tool.
7: Right. No, we've been treating fear of heights for decades, probably hundreds of years. I've been taking people up to tall buildings and tops of parking garages, and it works just fine, but it's inconvenient. It's not always feasible because you have to actually go to a high place with a patient. And so with virtual reality, you can create that without leaving your office all within your 45-minute therapy session And that was part of the initial question is, would it work? And
0: what was the answer to that question? And it did. It did. Okay.
7: Yeah, it worked brilliantly. All of our measures of fear and anxiety decreased in the folks who received the virtual reality exposure therapy. We videotaped all of the sessions, and we had someone go back through and mark any time someone reported a physical sensation of fear. And they reported all of the same physical sensations of fear that you would expect in a real life height situation butterflies and sweating and heart palpitations. One of our scenarios was a virtual elevator, and they reported that motion, like in their knees, as the elevator was descending. Huh. What was also wonderful is by the end of treatment, seven out of ten of the people who had received the virtual reality exposure therapy reported exposing themselves to real-life height situations, and that was without us even asking them to. So it, it transferred. It translated to real life, which is really what you want. It doesn't matter too much if someone's more comfortable with a virtual elevator if they can't get on a real elevator.
0: So would you say that it is as good as the therapy, the modalities that came before it?
7: Yes, I, I can for the ones that it's been tested. So remember, I'm a scientist. I'm not going to say something, hopefully, that goes beyond my data. We've done a number of studies using the virtual reality exposure therapy for the fear of flying. And so we created a virtual airplane. And in several of those studies, we compared it with going to the airport and using a real airplane. And so in those, I can say that the virtual airplane worked just as well as the real airplane, But now we've just made it so much more feasible, so much more convenient, and actually much cheaper.
0: I have to think, though, that you need to find patients who are open to a virtual experience. Is that most patients? Is that all patients? Help us understand the receptivity among clients.
7: Well, I'm not sure. In that very first study, we just advertised for people with the fear of heights. And we screened people if they had the fear heights. In the fear of flying studies, we just advertised and screened people for the fear of flying. About half of the people with fear of flying have a fear of crashing. About half have a fear that's more like claustrophobia or panic disorder. And it seems to work just as well for both of them. Within about 20 or 30 seconds of putting on the head-mounted display, that becomes your reality. And especially if people are scared. So we know how to present fear cues. And if someone's scared of them, it taps into that same system and it arouses the fear. So then the way we know how to treat it through exposure therapy, seems to work just as well in virtual reality. It does appeal. We've been doing a number of studies with veterans as well, and we, we do think that the younger veterans really like it, but I think they are more of a video generation.
0: Hmm. So you talked about fear cues. Does that mean that when you don the goggles, like for a fear of flying, that you encounter turbulence or something?
7: Right. So let me, let me describe what the VR is. So everybody talks about virtual reality these days, or VR. For it to be real virtual reality, it's more than just a computer-generated multimedia environment. We usually have people on a raised platform with a bass shaker, a woofer, a speaker underneath it. And that gives them the sensations that they're feeling. So you don't really realize it. But most of what we experience in an airplane, if it's not outside the window, it's what we're feeling. We feel the turbulence. We feel the landing gear coming up. And so we can reproduce all of that with this base shaker. Mm-hmm. For some environments, we also have smells. And so we can, at the moment that they pass something or they say, I smell diesel fuel, we can present diesel fuel. So it's a very immersive experience
0: okay, this is very cool, there are a lot of sensations, but how important is it to pair all of the bells and whistles with traditional talk therapy? I mean, I wonder if a risk of of the bells and whistles is that you get so focused on them, you forget the, the kind of you know underpinnings of psychology and psychiatry.
7: Right, and that's, I always, when I'm training therapists in this, I try to tell them bad VR therapy is just bad therapy. Always use your good therapy skills. Your eyes are always on your patient. So you have to be very familiar with the virtual reality equipment and the program so that your eyes are always on the patient so you are giving them good therapy. And it offers me ultimate control. For example, if I've got someone with the fear of flying, If they're not ready for turbulence, I can guarantee there won't be turbulence. When they are ready for turbulence, I can guarantee there will be turbulence. I can take off and land as many times as they need to, all without leaving my office.
0: When the person has been exposed, do you sit down with them afterwards and do talk therapy?
7: Well, exposure therapy is the therapy. So all exposure therapy is is helping the person confront what they're scared of, but in a therapeutic manner so that that fear decreases and they learn in their body, they learn in their brains, this situation does not pose the same level of threat as they were responding as if it did.
0: What do you see as the promise of VR, especially as the technology gets more sophisticated and the experiences, I suppose, more and more real?
7: So one, like in, in the virtual airplane, I think it's just more feasible. It's more convenient. It is cheaper. If someone had to pay for me to go to the airport to fly with them, it's going to be very expensive. Insurance companies don't pay reimburse for that. Um, And also, a lot of therapists won't even treat fear of flying or other kinds of fears that require in vivo exposure therapy leaving the office because it's just too inconvenient. For some disorders, so for example, we've been using it to treat combat related PTSD. We also have another one for military sexual trauma. And for those applications, we do it a little bit differently. We do imaginal exposure to the person's most traumatic memories, for example, from Iraq or Afghanistan, but with their eyes open and the therapist is matching what they describe in the virtual reality. So, for example, if they're describing driving back to base, Jones is next to me, Smith is in the turret, hit an IED on the right front, everything blows up, fills with smoke. We can recreate that. And so the reason I like it for PTSD is that people with PTSD are generally very avoidant. And the virtual reality is such a potent stimulus, I think it's harder to avoid.
0: Right, and this idea of programming VR to match someone's experience specifically with sexual trauma, I, 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 are, you, are you recreating the rape? No, no, no. no right. Yeah, no. no,
7: no. Don't cringe. What we're exposing people to is their memory of their trauma. And we don't want to present anything realistically dangerous. So, for example, we do not, for military sexual trauma, we do not present the perpetrator. But we place them in a situation that looks similar to the situation that they were in. So, for example, we've got latrines. We've got military-looking offices. We've Mm. got forward operating bases. We've got a U.S.-based-looking motel. We've got a vehicle. They can be in the front seat or the back seat. So we're placing them in the situation. We can adjust the lighting, the time of day. But the exposure is to their memory of what happened.
0: You said that insurance wouldn't necessarily cover the cost of a flight for exposure therapy if someone's afraid of flying. Does insurance tend to cover virtual reality therapy?
7: What most therapists tell me is they just code the regular code they would for a session and that they are reimbursed.
0: Professor, is a day coming when I take the VR goggles and leave you behind? You know, I I do this at home for gosh, I don't know, weight loss or to quit smoking?
7: Maybe. Uh, Most people actually cure themselves of what's wrong. Most people quit smoking on their own. Most people lose weight on their own. Most people overcome a lot of their fears on their own. And so I think that that's possible. And they have done one study that I'm aware of that came out a couple of months ago, a British study, where they used a virtual therapist. And uh, they got positive results. I, I think her hands are abnormally large. <laughs> she looks a little funny, but it was effective. But it's also it's a program written by psychologists knowing what's effective. So for some disorders, for example, PTSD, they might still need a therapist because they tend to be avoidant. For some disorders, they might be able to use it in a self-help format, and I think that that's terrific.
0: Do you still have the first program that you created all those years ago?
7: I don't. I don't. That first one was run on a huge computer that still had to live in a different room. So (laughs) now everything's on PCs, but we would have to, when we were ready for the patient, for example, to go up a couple of floors, we would have to say over a a mic to a, a computer programmer in the next room, Rob, can you take me to floor 14, please? So that we have come a long way since then.
0: You've come a long way. Thank you for being with us. It's been fascinating.
7: It's been my pleasure.
0: Dr. Barbara Rothbaum is a pioneer of virtual reality therapy, which is being used now with students at CU Boulder. Rothbaum is a professor of psychiatry at Emory University in Atlanta. The Chicano civil rights movement can trace its roots to three important events in Colorado 50 years ago. In Brighton, five Mexican-American women who chained themselves to a fence at a carnation farm were tear-gassed. They were on strike for higher pay and better working conditions. A month later, in March 1969, students at Denver's West High School walked out to protest institutional racism.
4: Demands were made of authorities. Signs carried at the height of activity said, Black and Brown United.
6: We demand better schools. Education, not racism. Chicano power. And our Selma
5: is here.
0: It's from a film a city commission made. It shows police and riot gear moving in on the students and violence erupting. Just days later, more than a thousand activists poured into Denver for the first national Chicano Youth Conference. It was led by the Crusade for Justice, founded by former boxer Rodolfo Corky Gonzalez. Well, this month, Denver's Sioux Teatro Theatre Company commemorates the birth of the Chicano movement with a new play co-written by Tony Garcia, Executive Artistic Director. And Tony, thank you for being with us.
4: Thank you for having me, Ryan. You know, glad to be here.
0: Yeah, it's nice to see you. We recently talked to some of the women involved in that strike at the Kitayama Carnation Plant in Brighton. Why don't we reset the stage about what happened February 15th, 1969?
4: Well, the United Floral Workers of America had been on strike since July. They were concerned about the increasing level of violence and intimidation that was taking place on behalf of the Kiriyama Carnation Company and also on behalf of the Wild County Sheriff's Department. Uh, the sheriffs would line up with horses with spikes on their on their hooves and they would intimidate the women by moving them backwards. And So there was a lot of agitation and, and irritation on both sides and they were feeling that what was going to happen to them was well, somebody was going to get seriously hurt. So Lupe... This is Lupe Briseño. Lupe Briseño, yes. She and the rest of the, the workers decided that they wanted to carry out a large action in order to, to make their statement, and then they would move their battle into the courts. And on that day, they they came in to the plant about 6 o'clock in the morning before the scabs started to come in, and they chained themselves to the fence, feeling that what would happen is that they would be cut loose and probably arrested Instead, the Weld County sheriffs came to them with these tear gas guns and machines, and at point-blank range, tear gassed them, causing the women to fall to the ground and collapse and to be sick. And and their families came and took them away. This ended the strike, but what it did is it ignited a wave of activism.
0: You mentioned Lube Prisano, who's now 86. I guess a lot of her words make it
4: into the play. Lupe is incredibly articulate. So, yes, we we took a lot of her her direct quotes from written materials and also from conversations that we had with her.
0: Does any particular quote stand out?
4: When they fired her, they gave her her knife back. And she said, I do know how to use the knife. (laughs) And if you're trying to intimidate, she says, I know you're trying to scare me, but I need you to know that I know how to use this knife. And it means I'm going to cut the flowers. But it's Lupe's pretty much way that she's to tell you that she's not going to be pushed around. Why don't we hear from Lupe herself talking
0: about having relocated to Colorado from Texas and the sort of tasks she was taking on with his labor action?
3: You get scared, but at the same time, you get very angry with yourself. Why did I come here? You know, why do we have to start this but you don't want to get on your knees and beg and, and then get treatment
0: like that. H- has she seen the play?
4: Uh, yes, they did. They. Lupe has seen it twice. She was there opening night. Uh, and when we introduced her to the crowd afterwards and stuff, she got a huge standing ovation. And then on Saturday night, last Saturday, all the three remaining women took stage at the end of the show. Uh, it was a big cry fest. They made a statement. They wanted to recall the two women who had passed on. And the biggest thing that they shared with us is that they really felt that what they were doing was for the following generations. And also they felt that people had pretty much forgotten about it. People didn't remember it. And they were very overwhelmed and pleased that people thought it was significant.
0: Okay, so the story of the Yama Strike is one half of your show, which is called Chicano Power, 1969, the birth of a movement. Uh, the other story is about the West High School blowout, as it was called, March 20th of 69. How old were you at the time, Tony? I was 15. 15. Do you remember it from that time?
4: I do. I'm a Westsider. I born and raised in what's called the Auraria, It was now called the Auraria neighborhood. I grew up there. But I wasn't going to West High School then. I was a musician, and all I wanted to do was hang out with my musician friends and play music and for some reason, I was I was attending East High School. One of the few days I attended East High School, and the kids walked out of the East, and that's how I first heard about it. And then when I came back to hang out with my buddies in the West Side, they were all talking about what took place. What we didn't have at that time, though, was a perspective of all the other things that were taking place. I didn't know about the Kiriyama strike. I actually found out about the Kiriyama strike after I had written a piece called Quarente Ocho, which is about the, the bombings of the six people that were killed in Boulder.
0: You met again with people who were at the West High School blowout in 69 to hear their stories. What what stood
4: out? What stood out was the arc, what people were feeling. What was the lead-up because at, at that time, I didn't understand the lead-up. Yeah, uh, what
0: were their concerns?
4: So the relationship with the police was a big, was a huge factor. A young man named Luis Pineda had been killed by a police officer in what was then Omera Ford's on Colfax and Mariposa. Like the car dealership? The car It was. They had a used, their, their used car dealership was there. Hmm. And actually, the relationship with Omeras was fine. I mean, we used to all cut through there, go to the bathroom, hang out there and, and stuff. It was a big garage. And it was pretty laid back. But Louis broke in there at night. He wasn't stealing a car. He was, just va- he was vandalizing. I don't know if you should say just vandalizing, but he wasn't stealing the car. But in the confrontation with the police officer, he was shot. And the community wanted answers, and the police kind of just ignored it. Uh, it took a long time before they were able to, able to get the autopsy report. When they got the autopsy report, they found out that Louis had been shot twice in the back. Um, so but This
0: is so interesting because I really thought a lot of what was behind the blowout was what had happened at school, but there were a lot of things going on outside the school that led to this.
4: Well, when we started hearing about the police relationships, right, and it was not only here in the West Side, it was in North Denver, too, because a young Af- African-American man had been killed in September That same year. So there was these this kind of floating relationships, you know, that that they felt there was a general level of disrespect. So consequently, the teacher, the racist teacher making the remarks that set off the students, the aspect that they were getting pushed to go either to Vietnam and if they had any any kind of police issues, they were saying, well, you should go into the military, pushing them out of school in order to, to go into the military. Also, no avenues for you, for higher education stuff. All of those were factors, but it all led to this piece of feeling that the system had absolutely no respect for them and they had no mm-hmm. place in it.
0: And tell us what happened when the tensions boiled over. Take us to that day.
4: Well, the students have been going to the Crusade for Justice to get so look for some kind of support. And
0: again, this is uh Corky
4: Gonzalez's organization. Absolutely. So uh, they met with the teacher and in the course of the conversation, he walked out and didn't want to deal with them. This is the teacher. So they decided to walk out the next day and a handful, 150 or so left. And they went, they marched to Baker and then they came back to West and they were gathering on the steps and the police decided that they needed them to clear the steps. So when they gave the order to, st- to clear, you had three groups of kids, students, those on the steps those in the middle and those in the back. The ones in the back never heard the order. The ones in the front started to move. The ones in the middle started to get trampled by the police and such. And then you had chaos breaking out after that. There's another factor, I think, that that kind of ties into the police story, was that the police had been getting from December through February a lot of anti-riot training. They had just finished creating this special unit anti-riot unit three days before this event. The first time they used their brand new helicopter is on the kids. So they have bunch of new toys, and this was a great opportunity for them to try them out.
0: To what extent do you think that history has imprinted itself on, say, West High School, on the Chicano community? I mean, here you were saying you weren't aware of the Kitayama strike for many years. Uh, was this perhaps better known?
4: Yeah, the West High School was front page newspaper stuff. Interestingly enough, City Council of Denver gave the police department commendations for their activities in beating up underage kids. But I think where it really played itself out in terms of making massive changes was in the subsequent Chicano National Liberation Youth Conference which took place about eight days later. Yeah,
0: this is, this is part of the intensity of that time. So, this third big event in 69, the Chicano Youth Conference, organized by the Crusade for Justice that we've talked about. This isn't part of your play, but considered a seminal event in, in launching a Chicano rights movement.
4: So, the conference had been scheduled. Oh. So it wasn't like they had the conference in reaction to these, these things. It was already something. was. They expected to have about 300 students from around the state. Instead, they got 1,500 people from around the country. Also, you have a group of people who have been out in the street fighting hand-to-hand combat, thinking the revolution was right there in their backyards. It transformed so many things. The intensity was there. The other piece is ideologically one of the biggest tenets that they came away with was this concept of Aztlan. Aztlan is this mythical land that the Aztecs originally came from. However, it refers to, after the conference, to the states that once belonged to Mexico. They were taken away from Mexico in the war with Mexico. So it answers the question when people tell you, go back to where you came from, you say, I am where I came from. The other piece. I, I love
0: the line that we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. Absolutely. You know.
4: People went to bed in, 19, in 1848, you know, and they woke up in Mexico and they woke up in the United States. Yeah. And so this creates that argument, it creates that ideological rationale. The other piece is the concept of that as, a, as Chicanos, that we were part of the mestizaje, we were a mixed race people. Now, what that does ideologically, it just challenges the concepts of white superiority, because the car, the basis of white superiority is Aryan purity, right? So this says we are anything but pure. As a matter of fact, we're mixed with everything, and we think it's really a damn good thing. Do you draw a line
0: between what happened in 1969 and the election of Denver's first Hispanic mayor, Federico Peña?
4: Oh, absolutely. Actually, I just saw Federico last night, and we were talking about it. Absolutely, because by that time—listen, Denver is— at the time of the, the walkouts, 12% Chicano, Latino, right? And has Alexa mayor before cities like Albuquerque, L.A., right, where they have huge Latino populations. I grew up in this city yeah. that was segregated. This city where we were invisible, was a city where it was great for us to— I mean, the, the, the view was as long as we stayed in our area, we were going to be okay. To the place where now— we were front and center, our face we were that visibility, and Corky gave us that visibility, and, and Federico did not run away from Corky.
0: And today you drive down Pena Boulevard if you come in and out of Denver through the airport. Tony Garcia, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Ryan, for having me on the show) <laughs> Tony Garcia is Executive Artistic Director of Su Teatro Cultural and Performing Arts Center in Denver. He co-wrote the new two-act play Chicano Power 1969, The Birth of a Movement. It runs through March 31st. And that's our run for today. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.